Good morning. It's wonderful to see all of you. You have started week 12. It's amazing. And I, I mean this. I'm so proud of you. I think it's so awesome. Look what you have accomplished. You're not done yet. But well done. There's a lot that goes into undertaking the thing that you've agreed to do just 12 or 11 short weeks ago. So keep pressing on. May you be encouraged today with the thoughts of the Apostle Paul about the Lord Jesus and what the Lord Jesus has accomplished and why we should be encouraged. And I know all of us could think of reasons why we should be discouraged in our present state or our present world or context or circumstances, but there is reason to rejoice, amen? There's reason to rejoice, even if you're struggling this morning. There's reason to rejoice, and I want to direct our thoughts to what I think the Apostle Paul is directing um, his audience, but let's pray one more time. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for your beauty and your love for us. Father, thank you that your existence and your goodness is not dependent on what we do or believe. That you are self-sufficient outside of this world, outside of us, and that you have chosen in your character and, and, and you, your person to love us through the, your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to direct our thoughts this morning. Help us to kind of weed out or block out all the other things that are distracting us. Help us to listen, Father, to your words. May you speak through me, Lord, or speak through the text that we be encouraged. Help me, Lord, to be careful about my words and help my words to be true and sound, Lord, in light of your teaching who you are. We love you and we thank you. We give you praise and honor today because you deserve it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So today we're just gonna go continue our series in Romans, as was already said. So Romans 8, 18 to 27, and We're going to continue this idea of transformation that we've been talking about in Romans throughout the Monday chapels. In terms of our theme at Emmaus Bible College this year is that that is to walk, live, and keep. But I would like to add another verb to our theme for this year that I think emerges from the text. That I think we should walk and live and keep in accordance to the Spirit of God and what He's done. But I also think here in this text we can add to wait. And that's really the focus of my talk this morning to you, to challenge you and encourage you to ponder and think about how do we wait and wait for what and in what way do we wait? So we're going to talk about that a little bit. So our focus this morning is looking forward to the full redemption, the full redemption of God's rescuing or restorative efforts through the gospel of the new work of new life that Jesus Christ has already began in us and promised us. This isn't it. Like, this is it, but this isn't all of it. Amen? There's more to come. Yes, there's more gifts from God. There's more care from God that springs out of the ultimate gift of salvation that we have through the personal work of Jesus. And that's what Paul's tapping into. But I think sometimes in order to get to some of the good stuff that can be an encouragement to us, we have to face some of the things that may be causing discouragement. So I want to carefully walk you through that today a little bit. But my goal is to remind you, out of what, uh, in terms of what you already know through Christ, many of you, 
what has been commanded of us. Yes, we walk by the Spirit, but also what is to come with Christ. And my goal is to not give you any eschatological predictions. I recently heard of a person that I love and respect um, give a talk um, of, to some youth in predicting that the Lord is going to come in the next two years. I think that's a fool's errand. I think it's a distraction. I think that's none of our business of the timing. And Jesus repeated that and told that to his disciples in Luke 24 and Acts 1. Our focus is something different. Amen? So there's a direct link between our ability to live in accordance with our new person in walking with Christ and not only our understanding of what, that, what he has done, but there's a link between knowing what he's done and walking with him and hoping and anticipating of what is to come. This is the best part about the Christian life of what's coming that we don't have yet. And that is the fullness of our redemption in Christ Jesus. So before I dive too far into this too quickly, let me remind you of what Mr. Banaski brought us in Romans 8 last week. Just a couple comments. We spent a lot of time in Romans, but let me remind you of some of these foundational truths that sets up the second half of Romans 8. Number one, that there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Amen? There's none. Let me say it a different way. God has freed us from the punishment of sin and death, rightfully so, that all of us deserve. And we no longer have to live in fear, wondering what our status is before God with Jesus. And that should free us not to live how we want, as Paul would eloquently say in Galatians and most of Romans, is that we are now free to obey God and love him without fear, which is really true love anyway. Jesus has set us free and there's no condemnation. There's nothing that God is going to punish, for, punish us for as far as sin and condemnation. There's no indictment on us anymore. That's the first thing. Jesus fulfills the righteous requirement of the law in us. That doesn't mean I don't have to do anything, but that means Jesus has paid all of it for you and I who believe. That all of it is paid fully. He keeps the law for us. And his righteousness is given to us. His perfection is given to us. That's really important for us as modern Christians today. That he fulfills the righteous requirement of the law and now I'm free to obey God in his spirit. Therefore, our focus is to be shaped by the spirit, not the flesh. We know that from the teachings of Galatians and what we've been talking about for a while with Romans. That we have been given a spirit of righteousness in our new creation that the same spirit or the power of the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, this just blows my mind. That same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, Paul claims is the same spirit in us today. Did, did you catch that? You ponder that? Nothing is impossible with that kind of God in us. Not that we're possessed, but that God is intimately with us and given us and equipped us to live in accordance to how he has asked us to live now without condemnation, but freedom to obey now and live in the joy of being image-bearing in Genesis 1 and 2 territory. Man, guys, if you don't wake up in the morning and think about the gospel through that lens, you're remiss, you're missing something. Don't take that personally from me, but take it to heart. Rejoice in what God has given you, even if you're having struggle accessing it. 
and living in it. It's okay to struggle. Let's do it together. So we have this reminder in the second, uh, first half of Romans 8. Then uh, lastly, we've been adopted as heirs, as children of God, as our Father and Spirit confirms. God is our Father and the Spirit confirms to our spirit. We are children and that he will deliver what he's promised. And so now Paul talks about this interesting thing and he uses this interesting language that we groan or creation groans because of the suffering that was uh, uh, hoisted upon it because of sin. How we suffer because of sin. So I want to spend the rest of the time just talking this morning about three points. Any good preacher has three points, right? At least that's what I've been told. The three points are this. Here you go. For some of you uh, ultra-organized control freaks. Okay, I'm one of them. We groan and we hope. Point number three, we walk by waiting. We walk by waiting in the promise of God. So number one, we groan. We haven't received the fullness of what God has promised, so we sigh about it. Everybody collectively sigh with me. Ready? One, two, three. And that's what we do all day long. We just do it in different forms. Like, you hurt my feelings. I don't like you. Sigh. Like, oh, my bones creak today, if you're 46 years old, right? Uh, my bones creak today. <sighs> Sigh. Oh, I have to worry about my bill at the school. <sighs> Sigh. I'm insecure about how my significant other feels about me today. <sighs> Sigh. I get the phone call from home that I don't like. Sigh. And all of us know that we sigh. The whole world knows how to sigh. The problem is some of the world or we struggle with believing and trusting that we should sigh and that sigh should be a reminder of something greater. That pain should be a reminder of something that's greater. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. You don't need to be a rocket scientist to understand that. Genesis 1 and 2 gives an account of our representative humans created in goodness to function in good beauty and good design of a good God. Read the text. It says good, 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 good. Designed to function through work and cultivating and creating through stewardship and dominion and rule. Please pray for me right now if you're one of my students because I could get hung up on this and talk the rest of the time about that, but I won't. I need to exercise self-control. Okay, and multiplication is what God has commanded us to do, to multiply his character mainly through children, right? So, but through the sin, earth was changed, and we were changed, we were cursed. And Paul brings out this idea that we're, the curse of sin is death, and we see that in Revelation 22, that that sin goes away in a new heaven and new earth. Hallelujah for that. That there's separation from our creator and an inability, please listen to this, an inability because of sin and the curse of death to joyfully live in accordance with good things. So even sometimes when we have good things in this life that are from God, we can't enjoy them because we groan, we suffer. God has fixed that if we let him, if we believe and trust, and that's a struggle for some of us. Genesis 3 speaks of groaning. In chapter 3, we see what? We see the groans of childbirth. Um, don't want to digress too much, but it's very interesting uh, to have an experience as a father watching six of my children be born. And I will tell you, in my cynical, weird way of looking at life, every time I had tears when my son, sons or daughters were born, and they weren't tears of joy, they were tears of relief because I was counting fingers and toes and ears and things like that. And I was seeing if my wife was still bleeding 
or if she was under duress, because I've read a bunch of horror stories about the distress that women go through physically when they give birth. It's not the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to rejoice in new life. And so I groan, I, I sigh. I sigh in work, and I lament over work, and I don't want to do it because when I build something and it gets wrecked, it's for naught, and I feel like it's worthless. Or when I try so hard on a paper and I get a C on it, I feel like I didn't do a good job, and I, guess what? Do it with me. I sigh. Okay, so now move to this section over here, the enthusiasts, so let's take a cue from them, people, and let's pay attention. Right? We sigh in our relationships because we're unsure about how people feel about us or they gossip about us or they tell lies about us or they reject us and treat us in passive-aggressive ways. We have the threats of nature and we have to wear parkas in this weird northwest weather. Who wants to live in 30-degree below weather, people? Why can't we move to Florida? Any takers? It doesn't do any good if we move to Florida because then we have hurricanes. I don't know where we're supposed to go, right? I just want to make Bible college in the new heaven and earth. Okay, so we fear that. We fear, we go to the zoo, and we, we are thankful that the eight-inch glass is between us and the polar bear exhibit. Why? Because if the polar bear got out, it's not going to let you pet it very long. It's not going to cuddle with you like you grew up with the stuffed animal on your bed, and they brought you comfort at night. I'm like, hey, you can have that polar bear, son, but just know when you hug it, just know you should look forward to the new heaven and earth because you'll actually be able to do that with a, new, with a real polar bear because otherwise it will eat you. No, I don't. Those aren't the nursery rhymes in my house. I'm a little bit nicer than that. But you get the idea. We've had, we have the threat of angelics. Just go to Genesis 3 and remind yourself and ponder the fact that when Adam and Eve walked out of the garden that was literal and representative of their relationship with God being veiled and being different now and scary. They turned around and there was an angel with a flaming sword there saying, if you enter back into God's presence, I will kill you. We groan over many things. We can keep on going and going over disease and over fear and over anxiety and over stress and mental health issues and physical health issues. And we groan with hating ourselves and hating others. Let me share with you the songs of the wonderful beatnik poet named Bob Dylan. You know who Bob Dylan is? If you don't, get cultured, people. Please. No, I'm just kidding. Doesn't mean you're spiritual or not. Maybe. He has a song called Broken that came out years ago. Listen to the lyrics. Listen to the rhymes, people. Broken lines, broken strings, broken threads, broken springs, broken idols, broken heads, people sleeping in broken beds. Ain't no use jiving. Ain't no use joking. Everything is broken. Broken dishes, broken parts. Streets are filled with broken hearts. Broken words never meant to be spoken. Everything is broken. Seem like every time you stop and turn around, something else just hit the ground. Broken treaties, broken vows, broken tools. People bending, broken rules. Hound dog howling, bullfrog bullfrog croaking. Everything is broken. Even Bob Dylan understands it. Do we? And I don't mean do we understand how we're hurting I mean, do we understand what is available to us and given to us through the person of Jesus Christ to handle the brokenness? You see, sin and death has subjected us to futility or a hopelessness, and we despair in that hopelessness. 
And you might be there this morning right now. And I want to encourage you, whoever you are, I want to encourage you that although it is valid how you feel, it is. And it's okay to feel that way. It's not okay to stay that way. It's not okay to stay that way. And I mean that with love in my heart and compassion for you if you're sitting there and you're trapped in your brokenness and you feel aimless and hopeless because we're not aimless and hopeless people. We're redeemed people. We just need help remembering it and living it. Let's do that for each other today. We long for something better, to be free from the exasperation and fatigue. Humans are tired, but busy trying to fix it without Jesus. Let's not be those people. But we're tired of being tired because we're tired. And we, please do it with me again today, we sigh. And I'm tired today. I really, truly am. I'm tired. See, our struggle carries a lament or groaning. And the meaning of the word groaning in the text is really a lament. And the lament is a response that's invoked by distress and heartbreak, of tiredness, of fatigue. And it's usually articulated in an audible way with expression of eternal, internal emotion. Even uh, the word groaning is used in the text in the Old Testament, Exodus 2, 23 to 25, attributed to God's people in Israel as they groan under the weight and frustration of occupation or being enslaved by the Egyptians. That's what sets up the beauty of the story of the Exodus out of the old life into new life with God. Very interesting storyline there. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 2, starting with verse 2, he says, For in the earthly house we groan, we sigh, because we desire to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed after we have put on our heavenly house, we will not be found naked, for we groan while we are in this tent, this body, since we are weighed down, because we do not want to be unclothed, but clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. What is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Last time I checked, Jesus is life. Now the one who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a down payment. So what are you weighed down by this morning? What are you groaning over this morning? Whatever it is, point number two, let us hope. Let us hope. See, tucked in Paul's tone as I read it more and more, I just, he, he talks about difficult things and he laments and he's this this person that's very emotional on the tech, in the text that pours out on the pages, but yet he has an even stronger sense of hope. The even stronger sense of hope. So point number two, we hope. Just as Jesus has set us free and we don't have to live as if we have no hope or help. I know that we feel that way sometimes. Maybe a lot we feel that way, that there's no hope and no help. But I want to remind you this morning, Jesus is our hope and help. Let him give you hope and help you. We don't have to live in fear or anger or anxiety or addiction or frustration in the flesh. We're new. We're new. We don't have to live that way anymore, although I struggle choosing to live that way. Ephesians 1, again, talking about the Spirit and how the Spirit helps us and cares for us and is an expression or a token of God's faithfulness as a down payment. 2 Corinthians 4 just talks again about this momentary affliction that we'll be free from one day. Whatever day that is, it's not so far today because we're sitting here. I like to joke with my EM students 
and ask them, especially my freshmen, every so often in class, because it's a morning class, and I, ask the, I like to ask them, did you go outside today and look at the clouds? In other words, did you go outside and see if Jesus is coming yet? As, as I drive to work every morning and there's clouds, I inevitably think of that reality. Is Jesus, are you coming yet, God? I hope this is today, but if it's not, it's okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get myself going with your help, right? First so, uh, Peter 1, again, the same thing in light of we ha- because Jesus has been raised from the dead, we have the same power that raises us from the dead and equips us for the Christian life in a Genesis 3 context, a fallen context. We're not left alone. Your generation needs to hear that right now so badly the kind of distractions that you have and that we have, the kind of abandonment that you've experienced emotionally. I'm not trying to give you a license to complain or abdicate your responsibility. I'm just telling you, we need a message of hope in our churches and in our circles today. Stop distracting yourself with all the other stuff. Play a little less Xbox. Play a little. Play a little. Still play. But let's do more of encouraging each other of that day. Because people are hurting and we just covered up with Xbox or covered up with ice cream or covered up with some other self-help, self-soothing thing. And that's not an indictment on you. That's just saying, let's turn to Jesus for this. And let's do it through one another. That's the exhortation to you today. So the Spirit is crucial in the process that we use to encourage us in this life. So let me give you, again, three, the magic number, right? Let me give you three functions of the Spirit, okay? Number one, we, we know about for sure Uh, in terms of our hope and endurance, that the Spirit baptizes us and facilitates the transformation in Christ. The Spirit brings the new life in which we were created new from in Galatians 2.20. The Spirit brings that wonderful job of the Spirit. Number two, the Spirit assists us in serving Christ through sanctification, helping us, illuminating us, teaching us, equipping us, gifting us, comforting us. Like, Please go do some devotional reading in John 14 and 16 and take Jesus literally in what he's telling his disciples about the Spirit. It will blow your mind apart. It's awesome. So the Spirit assists us. And number three, and this is the one we don't concentrate on, at least I don't, that the Spirit serves as a down payment or a confirmation of what, of what is to come in terms of the fullness of God's work through the gospel. What does that mean? See, Paul is arguing that the Spirit of God in us demonstrates the seriousness of God fulfilling all that he's promised us. So let me put it maybe this way that might help you, is God has already given himself through the person and work of Jesus, and he gives of himself through the Spirit of God by giving us his Spirit to dwell with us permanently. That God's presence is in us and in our midst. I believe that to be true. Right now, the living God is present in form right now. I don't mean that in a weird uh, mystological way. I just mean in a very literal, real, practical way, the God of the Bible, Yahweh, the God of creation, the God of redemption has come to dwell with men and women, mankind. And Paul is saying this very important thing to the believers sitting there because they groaned. They, I don't know if I can get up today. They sigh 
And he wants to encourage him and says, the spirit is in you and with you. Look forward to that day, but don't get obsessed with it. And that's what I want to talk about in this next section. So we hope in the character of God. We hold on to his promises. It's very interesting when you kind of peel away, the te- when you look into the text a little bit, um, he directs our attention to, to Jesus or hoping in God, not hoping in the promise of the gift being fulfilled. Now think about that for a minute. Like the true gift that we receive is God himself, not what he's promised us. In fact, really, if we would put it in a more accurate theological way, the thing that God has promised us is himself. He's the one that says, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to restore what was lost. Now go to Genesis 1 and 2 and ask yourself, what, what was their experience like in Genesis 1 and 2? It was relationship. It was awesome. I was reading Genesis 1 with my 12-year-old last Friday having coffee with him. And uh, he schooled me in Genesis 1. And I noticed he brought out something that I've been pondering and thinking about. And so I want to present it to you to think about. In Genesis 1, 25, 26, 27, it says, Let us make man in our image. And then the next thing that said is that he put man in the garden to cultivate it. And my son said this. He's 12 years old. So amazing. He said, Dad, why didn't they bow down to God? Why, did, why didn't they bow down to him and just worship him? And I thought, what a really good question. And I've been pondering that, and I'm still working through it. But I think because of the character and nature of God, does he deserve prostrate worship? Absolutely. Is he demanding that in a selfish way? No. What I see in the text in Genesis 1 and 2 is that God, in a, such a wonderful personal way, was walking with them and doing life with them. And you can go read the text and kind of make your own conclusions. But I thought, man, you know, that's the response of the ancient pagan gods that the world has created and that we bow down out of fear of the, of the false gods harming us or not blessing us. We don't have to live in fear with our God. We don't. And that's the beauty of the gospel. So as we kind of work, work, work through this, our prize, our focus needs to be the person and work of Jesus as a, as a God of ours, who he is to us. That's the prize. That's the focus. And we lean into and depend on the promise because he's trustworthy and good. And I know that some of us struggle with that very question today, and I want to encourage you through that. So to me, the, the focus of the person of Jesus is the fuel for the Christian life right now. That's the encouragement. That's the, uh, that's the inspiration. And you can read uh, Revelation 21 and 23 that it says this. It's just wonderful. I want to reference it, and then we're going to get to my last point here because we've got to have three, right? Okay, so there's a new Jerusalem in Revelation 21, and watch the language. Descending out of heaven from God made ready like a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, the residency of God is among human beings. He will live among them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away. Let me repeat that. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will not exist anymore, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the former things have ceased to exist. Let me translate that. He will fix everything, and we will no longer sigh. We'll rejoice. That day is coming. 
So how do we wait then? Here's the last point. How do we wait? How do we wait? We struggle, and we struggle with this difficulty, and we have this challenge, but struggle and difficulty is no excuse for us for it to prevent us from responding to God in obedience in this life. I know that we struggle, but the standard is still the same, and God has enabled us to do it. We don't work for God's affection and love. Jesus has already taken care of that. He loves us. We don't work to earn anything. What we do is we work as an expression of that love for that God who deserves it. And in turn, as we serve him, we experience joy and we know him more deeply. And this is how we wait, or in other words, how we walk. And that's our theme, right? How we walk. So how do we walk? I want to give you a quote from Diedrich Bonhoeffer, which uh, during World War II was a German. And uh, he was a German theologian and a Christian man and lived for Christ and spoke against the Nazi regime and was eventually arrested and then killed in a concentration camp. Don't forget the brothers and sisters of our history. They're part of our lineage of who we are. Let's respect that. Let's all of us respect that. So I want to quote him. This man was 20, 22 years old when he, when he gave this sermon. He says this, We have become so accustomed to the idea of divine love and of God's coming at Christmas that we no longer feel the shiver of fear that God's coming should arouse in us. We are indifferent to the message, taking only what's pleasant and agreeable and forgetting the serious aspect that, God of the, that the God of the world draws near to the people of our little earth and lays claim to us. The coming of God is truly not only glad tidings, but frightening news. Christ stands at the door. Christ is knocking, referring to an unsaved world, right? It is not yet Christmas. But it is also not the great final advent, the final coming of Christ. Through all the advents of our life that we celebrate goes, goes the longing for the final advent where it says, behold, I make all things new. Advent is a time of waiting. Our whole life, however, is an advent. That is a time of waiting for the ultimate, for the time when there will be a new heaven and a new earth. I can't help myself in speculating that some years later when he was about to die in a concentration camp still proclaiming Christ speaking against atrocities and evil on our planet speaking against groaning on our planet I can't help to think that he had this in mind and this helped him I don't know that to be a fact I'm not saying that it is reminding yourself of the truths of God and we learn to wait in anticipation but not sit there and do nothing. That's the exhortation to all of us. So we learn to wait. uh, Waiting, or what we wait for is important, but how we wait is, is just as important. And I don't know if Martin Luther said this. The internet says Martin Luther says this. I don't know, and I'm not claiming this. I still think it's a good phrase, so just hear me out. If Martin Luther didn't say this and you have evidence, come and talk to me and tell me, but be nice to me, okay? Martin Luther is supposedly known to be said this throughout history. In, in, during the Reformation. He says, even if I knew that tomorrow the world would go to pieces, I will still plant my apple tree. Even if I knew that tomorrow would be the end, I would still plant my apple tree. Now think about that for a minute. Because the apple tree takes a long time to grow and bear fruit. What is this point, or what's the point? I think the point for us is we should be, get, we should be getting busy waiting. We should be active and ready, prepared for our Savior to come when he comes. 
and that he's going to fulfill and redeem because of his character and his promise. He is going to fulfill and redeem that which we've entrusted to him, and that's our lives. This is not it, guys. This is not it. The scriptures are very eloquent and pointed when they say we're just when it says we're just aliens and strangers. This is not our home. We have a heavenly home. Let's live like it. Let's believe it. It doesn't make everything go away and all the groaning, but it sure makes it durable and helpful as we remind one another so we can be productive for God. Um, so Matthew 25, you can read this chapter. Go, go read it today. I would encourage you to do it this week. Matthew 25 is the whole sequence of events or parables that Jesus points out. The fig tree that's fruitless, he curses, right? And it dies. He talks about the wicked servant. He talks about the parable of the ten virgins, some of them missing the wedding as the bridegroom comes in. Think about that for a minute. Read some commentaries. And then he talk, talks about the parable of the stewards. All the while, the focus is this when you look at the parables. The focus is Jesus. The focus is the return of Jesus as the righteous master who, whose return is imminent. It'll happen any time. With an emphasis on stewardship and righteous living and readiness for his people. Are we ready today? I'm not talking about are you going to go to heaven? That might be a question for some of you. You have to think about that. I'm talking about those who are born again. Are we ready for the Lord Jesus to come back? In other words, have you done what you set out to do? And are you ready for Jesus to come back? Let's get busy today in your academics, in your studies, in your churches, in our dorm floors, at the lunch table. Let's get busy today being good stewards of the time that God has given us and the time that he's given the world to wait in his mercy before his wrath comes and his reward comes for his people. Amen? So as we, as we think about this, I want to... Uh, just give you another assignment too and go listen to I know some of you are going to sigh go listen to a Christmas song before Thanksgiving yes I said it I know who you are go listen to a wonderful Christmas hymn called O Come Emmanuel and it'll bring you to tears after you thought about these things today <laughs>